0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's reading is from Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, Well, brothers and sisters, uh, would you please pray with me uh, as we come again to look at this topic of deacons. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this, your word, uh, and we pray that you would give us all the help we need now uh, as we think uh, about who can serve as a deacon. Uh, We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, maybe you've heard the saying, the fish rots from the head down. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a graphic saying, thing about kind of rotting uh, the heads of rotting fish. But, but uh, of course, it's used to describe the critical importance of leadership in any group of people, really. Right? If a particular nation, a state, a company, a firm, or even a, a footy club, if any group of people is somehow unhealthy and dysfunctional, uh, it's typically typically because its leadership is unhealthy and dysfunctional. Right? The fish rots from the head down. Getting leadership right is critical. So getting leadership right in God's church is critical as well. We see that in the book of 1 Timothy. Maybe you remember in Acts chapter 19, you can read it later on, you can read about how Paul and his whole missionary team, including Timothy himself, spent two years planting the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. And then in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, where when Paul's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, uh, he warns them that false teachers are likely to enter their church, even from among them, uh, among the existing elders. And when we get to the letter of 1 Timothy, it seems that Paul was right. So if you flip back, if you've got your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with the false teachers who were there. And it seems from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 25, that at least some of those false teachers were men who'd previously been appointed as elders. I you, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul's giving Timothy instructions for how to deal with accusations against elders. The Ephesian church is a mess. Because to some extent, their leadership is a mess. So in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, the the verses immediately following our passage today, Paul says his purpose in writing to Timothy is to ensure that the Ephesian church knows how to conduct themselves rightly in God's church. And in 1 Timothy 3, where we see that a key aspect of people conducting themselves rightly in God's church is having the right leadership in place. The fish rots from the head down. So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lists the qualifications for the two God-ordained leadership positions in the church. You'll see there in verses 1 to 7, he lists the qualifications for elders or overseers. And in verses 8 to 13, he lists the qualifications for deacons. Now, when I say that the two God-ordained leadership positions in the church, that, that obviously reflects the, the convictions of the elders of our church as a Presbyterian church. Of course, there are some churches that would say God has very little to say in the Bible about how he wants his church to be structured and organized. Right? Well, we're essentially free to structure things however we want and to call our leaders whatever we want as long as we're getting the job done. But as a Presbyterian church, to be honest, that's that's not quite how we think. And of course, there are lots of areas where we acknowledge in church life where God gives us freedom to structure things how we want. Right? But but we're also convinced that in the Bible, God gives us at least some clear teaching for how he wants the leadership of his church to be structured. Right? In particular, we're convinced that the Bible teaches that there are two, what you might call, officers in God's church, right? elders and deacons. Right, so, so we're persuaded from the Bible that ideally all churches would have elders and as need arises, they would also appoint deacons. I'm just putting some cards on the table. That, that's where we're coming from uh, as a Presbyterian church. You, you, you might see things differently. That's okay. This is not a kind of central gospel issue uh, because what's most important is that we're on the same page with this deep conviction that getting leadership right in God's church is critical. But certainly we should be clear that this is God's church. So we should listen to what he's got to say about the leadership of his church. So let's look at this role of deacons. In the first part of verse 8, you'll see that Paul says, in the same way, deacons. Now, last week, Adam really helpfully explained how that word deacon simply means servant or or minister. Uh, But when Paul says in the the same way here, I think it's pretty clear that that he's connecting what he's about to say about deacons uh, with what he's just said about elders. Which tells us that that in referring to deacons here, Paul's not uh, talking about the kind of general sense in which every Christian is a servant, Right, because in this chapter, uh, he's talking about the two official leadership positions in the church, the two officers of the church. right? The elders who have a ministry of shepherding, uh, involving teaching and overseeing the whole church, uh, and the deacons who have a, have a ministry of serving, involving helping and caring for the whole church. Right? In short, that's the role of deacons. Uh, But what about the qualifications of deacons? Who is it that can serve as a deacon? In the rest of this passage, we see that men and women who who have consistently displayed exemplary character, convictions and conduct can serve as deacons. Let me repeat that. Men and women who've consistently displayed exemplary character, convictions and conduct can serve as deacons. So first, in the second half of verse 8, we see that deacons must display exemplary character. Deacons, Paul says, are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. And now I say exemplary character, because you'll see that the character traits that Paul lists here are really traits that every Christian would aspire to, aren't they? It's just that deacons are supposed to be exemplary in displaying these traits. They're to be worthy of respect, which means that this is a person who doesn't have to go around demanding respect because the church just recognises that they're worthy of respect. In part but because they're so sincere, which literally means that they're not double-tongued, they're not two-faced. There's no hypocrisy about this deacon. Deacons are sincere. They're not indulging in too much wine. Literally, they're not paying too much attention to wine. Of course, this echoes Paul's command about elders back in verse 3. If you cast your eyes back, he said there that elders shouldn't be given to drunkenness. Now, Paul's clearly not saying deacons aren't allowed to drink alcohol at all. Right, if you look in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul actually encourages Timothy to drink some wine. But Paul is saying that no deacon should be addicted to alcohol. No deacon should be mastered by alcohol. Because someone who claims that Jesus is their Lord and Master should not be living with anything or anyone else as their Lord and Master. So they shouldn't be mastered by money either, Paul says. Right, to the extent that they're pursuing dishonest gain. This echoes what Paul said in verse 3 about elders not being lovers of money. Now, maybe that seems a bit strange to you. After all, most of our deacons won't be paid. But let's face it, church leaders have often been accused of being greedy, of wanting to get their hands on people's money. And deacons are very likely to be in situations where they're managing money and resources to care for people's needs. They must not be driven by dishonest gain. Deacons must display exemplary character. And verse 9, deacons must display exemplary convictions. They must, Paul says, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. Deacons don't have to be able to teach the deep truths of the faith. That's a responsibility that God's are given primarily to elders. But they do have to keep hold of those truths. They have to have a firm grasp of those truths. The translation here, deep truths of the faith, it's a little bit unhelpful. right? Because it could imply that deacons have to have some sort of secret knowledge of the depths of the faith right? that only spiritual elites have. It's actually the word mystery here. It's uh, the mystery of Christ uh, that Paul refers to in places like Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, in Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 6. The mystery, Paul says, uh, that is no longer a secret uh, because it's been clearly revealed in Christ. So, Jews and Gentiles know uh, know through the preaching of the gospel uh, that by faith in Christ they can be made right with God, that they can be filled with God's Spirit, uh, and they can have the sure and certain hope of eternal life. What's the point? The point is that deacons aren't just people who like helping others, they aren't just people who are good at helping others. Deacons must be people who, as far as we can tell, are Christians. They show clear evidence of holding on to the mystery of Christ, of persevering in trusting Christ. Why deacons must display exemplary convictions. A third, deacons must display exemplary conduct. This picks up at the end of verse 9. You see there at the end of verse 9, Paul says, Our deacons must keep hold of the deep truth of the faith with a clear conscience. We we know from Romans 2 verses 15 and 16 that our conscience is that kind of internal judge that all of us have that that sometimes commends us for doing the right thing and at other times convicts us for doing the wrong thing. That's the conscience. So when Paul says deacons should have a clear conscience, he's saying that they should be people who by and large are living in line with the, the gospel truths that they're holding on to. Of course, a person's conscience is not like the ultimate measure of their conduct, is it? But particularly in a person whose conscience has been renewed by the power of God's Spirit, their conscience does give us a good indication of their conduct. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. He says that our conscience is a bit like a sundial and God's word is the sun. You know, our conscience gives us an indication of how we're going at living in light. With God's word. And we see in verse 12 that Paul is particularly concerned with how potential deacons are going with living in line with God's word in their homes. Because the best indicator of their future conduct in God's household is their past conduct in their own household. So, verse 12, Paul says, A deacon must be faithful to his wife. Uh, well, we'll get to the whole question of the gender of deacons in a second. Right? But uh, even though Paul's using masculine pronouns in this verse, I'm going to use more generic uh, terms in applying it. right? Because I think Paul would have expected Timothy to apply the traits in verse 12 to men and women who were serving as deacons. Uh, so first, Paul, in saying that a deacon must be faithful to his wife, he's not saying that a deacon has to be married. That'd be very strange to have a qualification that excluded Jesus, who wasn't married. He's like the ultimate deacon. He's saying that if a deacon is married, they must be faithful to their spouse. They can't be in the habit of lusting after people they're not married to. They can't be addicted to pornography. They certainly can't be committing adultery. Because only deacons who are faithful to their earthly bride, their earthly bridegroom, can be trusted to be faithful to the bride of Christ, God's church. So in considering appointing deacons, you should ask yourself, as far as I know, is this potential deacon faithful to their spouse? And as Paul says, a deacon must manage his children well. Well, when he says that, I assume Paul's got something similar in mind as when he said in verse 5 that, that elders should see to it that their children obey them. So if a deacon has got, has children, uh, you should ask yourself, uh, how have I seen them caring for their children? Uh, have I seen them disciplining their children? How, how do they go with that? Uh, do their children seem to listen to them and respect them and uh, and obey them? This doesn't mean the children of deacons have to be perfect. But you do have to ask, do they manage their children well in a godly way? And do they manage their whole household well? Right? Because as Paul said about elders in verse 5, a deacon can't be trusted to care for God's children and God's household if they haven't done a good job of caring for their own children and their own household. Right? Deacons must display exemplary conduct so how would we know if a potential deacon's consistently displayed exemplary character convictions and conduct how would we know that i believe the only way is to observe them over time isn't it well that's that's why paul says in verse 10 they must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them let them serve as deacons you know, maybe some of you read that and you think, well, why does Paul say deacons have to be tested when he didn't say that elders have to be tested? Well, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is that it was kind of common knowledge between Paul and Timothy that elders would be tested. Well, that's certainly implied in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 22, for example, Paul says to Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. So don't be too quick," he's saying, "to, to lay your hands on uh, on a man in public and ordain them as an elder. Right? Why? Well, because of chapter uh, five, verse twenty-four. One Timothy five, verse twenty-four. Paul says the sins of some are obvious, reaching uh, the place of judgment ahead of them, uh, while the sins of others trail behind them. Right? Don't rush to ordain elders," Paul says. Because some men's sins are really obvious. You you kind of meet them and you rule them out of being elders straight away. But other men's sins are much more subtle than that. You've got to observe them over time. Likewise with good deeds. In verse 25, Paul says, in the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. My good deeds tend to stand out, Paul says, like like a light in the darkness. But after a period of testing, even those good deeds that were hidden are revealed. So this importance of testing is really central to the process of appointing both elders and deacons. That's why my answer to the question, who can serve as a deacon, uh, is that it's men and women who have consistently displayed exemplary character convictions and conduct. But you've got to observe that consistency over time. Of course, in saying that men and women can serve as deacons, we come to verse 11, the gender of deacons. Now, before we get into verse 11, let me me just say that this whole question of of whether men and women can serve as deacons or just men, uh, it really is a question that's not absolutely clear in the Bible. So so whatever position we hold it, we've got to hold it uh, with a good, solid dose of humility. Acknowledging that the Christians who love their Bibles come to different conclusions on this. It's unclear, but because uh, there's really only two verses about it in the Bible, and both those verses are translated differently in different English translations. So for example, the NIV uh, translates Romans chapter 16, verse 1, as, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincra. But the ESV translates that verse, as I commend to, uh, as I commend to you our, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincra. So we're kind of left asking ourselves, is Phoebe an official deacon or just a faithful servant? But likewise, the uh, NIV 2011 Uh, translates 1 Timothy 3 verse 11 as, In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, and temperate and trustworthy in everything. Uh, Whereas the ESV translates it uh, as, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So you see the difference, right? In using the word "women," that the NIV is suggesting that the Paul's talking about female deacons in verse eleven, whereas in using the word "wives," the ESV is suggesting that the Paul's talking about wives of male deacons in verse eleven. So, so which is it? Well, I think that there's at least four reasons why Paul's talking about female deacons in verse eleven. I'll give you the four reasons. The first uh, is that it's worth noting that, that uh, when translations like the ESV say their wives uh, in verse 11, that there's actually no there there. Right in the original Greek, that there's just the one word uh, that could be translated as either women or wives. That's so why actually I think that the fact that Paul could have put the word there there but didn't tells us that he's probably talking about female deacons in verse 11. Not just deacons, wives. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, that the word in the same way at the start of verse 11 tells us that Paul's continuing to describe those who serve as deacons in verse 11. Which fits with the focus of this chapter, right? Which is all about official leadership positions in the church. It doesn't mention wives. Uh, Which leads to the third thing, which is there really is an argument of silence here. Which is to say that if the reference is to the wives of deacons, uh, then why doesn't Paul talk about the wives of elders? Well, you can look at verses 1 to 7. He doesn't. Surely uh, it's at least as important, if not more important, that the wives of elders are mature and godly women. I think Paul doesn't talk about elders' wives but because he doesn't talk about deacons' wives. He's talking about the officers of the church. He's talking about female deacons. Fourth, it makes sense, then, that the qualifications listed for female deacons in verse 11 overlap a whole lot with the qualifications for elders and the rest of the qualifications for deacons. It's no surprise there that when we come to Romans 16, verse 1, when we discover that Phoebe is serving as a deacon. Now, I'm not saying servant's not a legitimate translation in Romans 16, verse 1. It is, right? But the, the fact that Paul describes Phoebe, uh, Phoebe as a servant of the church in St. Uh, suggests that, that she's serving that church in an official capacity. Right? She's a deacon. Uh, Romans 16 verse 2 backs that up, right? Because what's Phoebe doing? She's described as a benefactor of many people, right? Her ministry is focused on using her wealth and resources to care for people who are in need. She's working as a deacon. In fact, it's most likely that part of Phoebe's service, her diaconal service to Paul, uh, was delivering his letter to the church in Rome. Men and women who have consistently displayed exemplary character, convictions, and conduct, can serve as deacons. And if they do that well, Paul says, they can be assured of a great reward. Take a look at verse 13. Paul says, Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Deacons who've served well will be rewarded, Paul says, in their relationship with with the church and in their relationship with God. With the church, Paul says, deacons who've served well will gain an excellent standing. Which I think means that because of their consistently exemplary character and convictions and conduct, these deacons will gain increased respect, the increased respect of their church and will therefore enjoy increased influence within their church. And before God, Paul says, deacons who've served well will have great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus, which I think means that they will have this ever-deepening confidence in their relationship with God. Now, that's not to say that God is pleased with these deacons because of their service, that somehow they've earned God's pleasure through their own works. God is pleased with them because of their faith in Christ. But the reward for these deacons who've served God well is being deeply assured that their Heavenly Father notices their service and is indeed pleased with their service. And so they draw near to him with ever-increasing confidence and security. Finally, let me briefly explain how we give expression to these biblical qualifications in the Presbyterian Church by having five wise requirements for deacons. Right? Requirements that emerge from what the Bible teaches. Uh, So first, uh, for someone to be a deacon in the Prezi Church, they have to be a member of our church. There's no uh, verse in the Bible about that, but but if you're going to be appointed as a deacon of our church, I reckon you should first be willing to become a member of our church. And of course, becoming a member, part of becoming a member, uh, is that process of discerning if someone's a Christian. Uh, Is this someone who is holding on to the deep truths of the faith. That's the first requirement. Second, deacons have to be members of our church for at least 12 months, which goes back to the importance of testing. You don't want to rush into appointing someone as a deacon. A third, deacons have to be at least 21 years old. Now, Maybe there's exceptions. I admit the age 21 is a bit arbitrary, but, but the point is that it's pretty rare for someone younger than 21 to fulfil these biblical qualifications for deacons. A fourth, deacons have to make public vows of commitment to some of the distinctives of Presbyterian theology and leadership. And I mean, if you were on the post-church Zoom last week, you, you know that, that this is the requirement that, that I personally have the most reservations about. You, you can ask me about that if you like, there's a teaser for the post-church Zoom, you know, get on there and, and ask me about that. But, but Despite those reservations, ultimately I have been persuaded that because deacons are being ordained as office bearers in the Presbyterian Church, it does make sense to expect them to have a higher level of agreement with some of the distinctives of Presbyterian theology and how we structure the leadership of the Presby Church. That's why they take these vows. A Fifth, deacons have to complete a training course which is once again about that idea of testing. We want to make sure potential deacons understand the role that they're committing to and that they really are ready to make that commitment before God and his people. So stay tuned for for details about our upcoming deacons training course. Those are five requirements that the Prezi Church has for deacons that emerge from the biblical qualifications for deacons. Maybe you've been listening to all that, and you just kind of think, man, that just seems like such hard work to be a deacon. You know, look, What would motivate someone to, to go through all that, to do that? And of course, the answer to that is that this kind of service as a deacon, really, as with any Christian service, is the overflow of a heart that's been gripped by the love of the ultimate deacon, like the love of Christ. But the love of the one who came not to be served, uh, not to be served. Excuse me, but to serve. Or literally, the one who came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to give His life as a ransom for many, paying the cost to meet our deepest spiritual need. But I reckon the more your heart's gripped by the love of Christ, the ultimate deacon who was willing to do that for you, the more you'll be moved to pay the cost, not just to meet the spiritual needs of others, but by praying for them, but by sharing the gospel with them, but also to meet their physical and practical needs, just like Christ, our ultimate deacon. But who is it that can serve as a deacon? It's men and women who've consistently displayed exemplary character, convictions, and conduct. Please pray with me. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, that this is your church uh, and that you care uh, about the leadership of your church because you recognise that leadership is so important in the life of the church or of any organisation, any community. We pray, Father, that you would help us to clearly understand what the role of a deacon is in your church and who it is that can serve as a deacon. And we pray, Father, that you would raise up deacons who have indeed, men and women, who have indeed displayed exemplary character, convictions and conduct over time. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.